Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from the Southern California foothills town of Glendora, California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead lost people to Jesus, building a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you, opens your heart, and shows you how to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Church. It's Pastor Jim. It's good to be with you again this week. I am so thankful that last Sunday afternoon after church, we got to celebrate Angelica's baptism. It was a beautiful day. Uh, It was a great day to be in a pool on a hot day, uh, truthfully. And then we got to celebrate the the wonders of baptism as well uh, as a tiny little girl gave her heart to Jesus and decided she wanted to give uh, the rest of her life to him. And this Sunday, we're going to celebrate Alani's baptism after church. And so that is that is great as well. The world is locked down, but the spirit is on the loose. And we will keep celebrating that here uh, at Real Life Church. Um, if you're worshiping in your homes today, that's great. I'm thankful that we have this uh, ability to do this in this day and age. A hundred years ago, I don't know what we would have done, but today we can worship safely in our homes. Uh, if you're not ready to be out in public again. I know some people are worshiping in small groups, uh, in a living room. God bless you if you're doing that. Uh, And we're also continuing to have worship in the parking lot outside, uh, legally, safely, face mask, distance, all that stuff. Uh, But we get to be together again. And so if you wanna do that, you're welcome to come do that with us. One of the fun, goofy things we're doing out in the parking lot is uh, Miss Stacy over in our children's wing every week puts together sermon bingo which is a bingo card with things that she thinks I'm going to say during the sermon. And so you get to hear little children in the middle of the sermon yell out, bingo, uh, which is awesome. And uh, I love that. And so if you want to join us here on Sundays, we're at 9 a.m. currently in the parking lot. uh, And stay tuned because I'm sure that'll continue to change as time goes along. But today we are going to continue in our series of studies on the book of Revelation because it is 2020 and it feels like the end of the world. So we're studying the book about the end of the world. Let's take a minute and pray together. Father, I thank you that you love us, and I thank you that even when when the world is in disorder, uh, it is still in your hands, that you who brought the land out of the waters and separated the day and the night can bring order out of our chaos, can show us where we walk on dry land, even as so many others around us flail. God, give us peace in our hearts, resolve in our minds, persistence in our patience. God, teach us to follow you and to witness witness to you and to continue reaching out in love to a world in need. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All right. Uh, One thing that you may know about the book of Revelation is that uh, that, uh, uh, a lot of people in this day and age read the book of Revelation and they think these things are about to happen. And so we should be concerned and we should look for signs because one day the sky is going to open up and angels on horses with trumpets are going to come out of the sky and there's going to be a big dragon walking around the earth and locusts and plagues and people are very anxious that these things could begin any minute. I kind of want to hang out in these people's backyard with a trumpet at about 6 a.m. just to see how they wake up if that's the first sound they hear. Um, Here's the deal. That stuff is not going to happen. 
That's not what Revelation says. People live in a panic that there, there are these coming events that uh, the signs of the, 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 the turmoil in the earth are going to give us indications that all this is about to come true. And people have been doing this for 2,000 years. Every time there's been a disaster or a war or a plague historically, zealous religious people have begun, again, talking about signs of the end of the world. Tim LaHaye made this very popular in his Left Behind series of books and movies that started in the late 90s and continued on for I don't remember how many volumes. But he took the events of Revelation and played them out as though they were real, with planes crashing to the ground because the pilot was a Christian who got raptured up. Well, you have to read Revelation as the apocalyptic literature that it is. And apocalyptic literature is written in a certain way and reads in a certain way. It's filled with symbolism and images that first century Christians would have understood immediately. It's filled with references that come out of the Hebrew scriptures and out of the context of the Roman world that first century readers would have known uh, uh, as, they, as they first read it. But if it had been written in literal direct terms, it would have been seen as what it was, a piece of conspiratorial literature written against the Roman Empire. And a peasant Christian in Ephesus walking around with conspiratorial literature would have been crucified. And so Jesus sees fit to reveal this revelation about the coming fall of Rome using symbols and images that his readers would have known. Jesus is asked about the end of the world, and Jesus talks about the end of the world in Mark chapter 13 and in Matthew 24 and 25. And what prompts him to talk about it is somebody looking at the temple in Jerusalem and saying this. This is in Mark 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you, do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Jesus is looking at the temple in Jerusalem and saying, literally, this building right here is going to be thrown down. That would happen 40 years after his death in 70 AD. Jesus probably died right around 30 AD. In 70 AD, the Romans would storm into Jerusalem and level the temple. And this prophecy that Jesus foretold would come true. The passage after that that talks about the end of the world is really alluding to the fall of Jerusalem, the end of, of their world, of their nation. And so when Revelation is written around 90 AD, they're looking back at 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed and Jesus' prophecy was seen as fulfilled. Revelation is then written in light of the fact that Jerusalem was destroyed by Rome. And it promises that Rome is going to get what's coming to it. Rome is going to get what it deserves. Which sure enough would happen some hundreds of years later in 395 when Rome would be destroyed. It's fun to read it and speculate, oh, these things could begin any minute now. There's a virus going all over the world and there are wars and everything's in chaos. Maybe it's the signs of the end. It's fun to read the Tim LaHaye series and think, what if it happened all this way? But that's really not what Revelation was intended to say. That's not what, it, that's not what John meant for his audience to read in it. There aren't going to be planes that just crashed because the Christian pilot was raptured. Which kind of makes me uh, think creatively about some, some airline ideas. I've never seen this before, but I kind of feel like this, this would have an audience. I mean, you can imagine, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we appreciate you flying today. We realize you have a choice in airlines. And while 
All of your choices are meaningless. We thank you for choosing Atheist Airlines, where no matter what else happens, we will not be raptured, right? I, maybe, I don't know. But that's not what Revelation is actually saying. That day is not going to come. Revelation compares Rome to Babylon, and it, and it uses that it uses that connection. Babylon was a country that had the, the Jewish people in slavery hundreds of years before, and they were set free from Babylon. And now they're enslaved, ruled over by Rome, and they're waiting to be set free from Rome. And so they talk about how Babylon fell as a way of talking about the fact that Rome is going to fall. Uh, Revelation 18 and 19 talk about how Babylon will be destroyed. Well, they're already free from Babylon. It's talking about Rome. And sure enough, few hundred years later, 395, Attila the Hun, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths come storming down out of Germany into Rome, and because they're Goths, they're all depressed and wearing makeup and wearing black clothes, and they sit in all the Italian cafes and write sad poetry, and so Rome falls, because that's really sad. The Italians were happy people before that. You should read history yourself. Don't take my word for it. But that's what happened. The Goths came streaming down into Italy and crashed it, and that was the, the fall of Rome, exactly as Revelation had prophesied. Rome had destroyed Jerusalem and persecuted God's people and was killing off Christians. And John says, when it seems like everything is out of control, the world is still in God's hands. He controls the land underneath us. He controls the volcanoes that the Romans worship. He controls the power centers of the earth. Even Caesar on the throne in Rome answers to the one who's on the throne at the center of the universe. Don't give up hope. The day will come where Rome gets what's coming to it. And sure enough, it did. It's not a science fiction book about things that are going to happen after 2020. But there is one part now where towards the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about the day where actually the whole world comes to an end, where everything is done. And we stand in front of God and give an account of our lives. And this here is not figurative or symbolic. This is real. Jesus talks about this himself over and over again. There will be a day of judgment in which we stand in front of God and look back over the course of the one life that we've lived, and we will then be accountable for it. What do you want to be able to say on that day? That day is coming. Revelation really promises. Even when Rome is done, when the kingdoms of the world are over, there's going to be a day where we stand in front of our God again. What do you want to be your story on that day? Jesus actually tells a, a parable about it that I want to read to you. This is in Mark chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest, at harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect, uh, to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? 
he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is a warning from Jesus. When we stand in front of him face to face on the last day, on the day of judgment, we'll be held accountable for what we did with our lives and what we did with the resources that he gave us. What do you want to be your story on that day? God created the world and planted humanity in it. And then he surrendered it to our hands at our request. As we pushed him away, he gave us a certain reign over the earth. He sent prophets over and over again throughout the story of the Hebrew scriptures to say, hey, we've ignored God. Turn back and follow God again or everything will fall apart. And sometimes Israel was faithful and they were blessed. And sometimes they weren't and things did end in disaster. But over and over again, the prophets were rejected. They were beaten and they were killed, just like the messengers that the vineyard owner sent. Until finally, God sent his only son into the world, Jesus of Nazareth, thinking surely they will accept my son. But we did exactly what Jesus predicted. We took him and we beat him and we killed him. That's the story of humanity. That should be the end of the story, and it should be a story of, of loss and disaster. We've rejected God when he walked among us. God owes us nothing after that. But God loves us too much to let that be the last chapter. God gives us a, an opportunity, a window of opportunity to restore our relationship with him, to enter back into relationship with him so that on the day we stand in front of him, he knows us by name. We better get this one right. Now, it isn't popular for preachers to talk about repentance. It's kind of a, a negative topic, and a lot of preachers in evangelical America avoid it. We probably need to repent of our lack of preaching on repentance. Because the truth is, a God who doesn't call for repentance is probably not the God you want. There was a, a theologian in the 20th century named Richard Niebuhr. And Richard Niebuhr described a kind of liberal Christianity that had watered down the doctrines of the faith and no longer called people to repentance. This is how he described it. He said, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the help of a Christ without a cross. That was his mockery of the, the watered down Christianity that was growing in the, the early part of the 20th century. Do you really want a Christ without a cross who welcomes in people without sin, who have nothing to repent of? Think about how that would really play out in the world. Think about how that plays out in, the, in a, a vision of parenting. Imagine a, a parent who's taking kids on a family vacation, and they're in the, the car for hours and hours, stuck in the back seat together. Now, I realize if you're under 40, you don't get to experience true family vacation the way it used to be experienced because you can pump your kids full of electronic devices and they will sit silently in the back seat for hours. I'm talking about family vacations where all you had was a cheap set of Connect Four. You and your sister were in the back seat for about six hours on the way to the beach and there was nothing to do but let loose the raw sinfulness of humanity on one another. I mean, without family vacations, we're never going to really see how truly broken humanity is anymore. Imagine a parent on a family vacation with the two kids in the back seat, and they are fighting and going at it. And the older one is picking on the younger one, as older ones tend to do. 
and the younger one is crying and squirming and fighting back. And the parent says, well, now look, if you don't stop it, I'm going to deal with you. But the parent doesn't do anything. So it continues to go on. And the older one keeps picking on the younger one. And the parent says, well, look, when we get there, I'm going to deal with it. I can't do anything right now because I'm driving. But in the end, I'll deal with you. And nothing changes. And the big one keeps picking on the little one. And then finally, they arrive at the destination. And the, the, little, the younger child in the backseat is haggard. And the older child in the backseat is still dealing with all their anger issues. And the parent gets out of the car and says, well, I know I said I would deal with it eventually, but I love you both the same, so I'm just going to let it go. Now, think about what that says about parenting. I mean, first of all, it's just completely negligent. That parent is not setting good boundaries for their kids. Secondly, that, that parent has nothing to say to the younger child who is oppressed by the older child. That parent literally has nothing to say on the subject of justice. And finally, in that scenario, once you, get to, once you figure out that that's how that parent operates, there's no, there's no incentive not to be the bully. There's no incentive not to pick on others around you because whoever does it is going to get away with it. Now, think about that in terms of theology. Do you want a God for whom there is no justice in the end? Do you want a God who says, I just love you all the same. I don't care how you treated each other now. Everybody come on into heaven. Or does some part of your heart long for a deep kind of justice, which makes things right in the end? That's what the Bible actually promises. The Bible promises that you and I will stand in front of God in the end and give an account of our lives. And on that day, some will be welcomed into eternal life and into justice and into righteousness. We're going to talk about this in next week's sermon. The Revelation paints a beautiful picture of the world to come. But there will be those who have nothing to say on the last day. There will be those who live for selfishness who never gave, who never sacrificed, who never loved, and who didn't know Jesus. Now, be real careful here. This is important. This is about your salvation. And Jesus has something very, very important to say about salvation in, in two ways. And getting this right makes all the difference in this world and in the next. Likewise for getting this wrong. Jesus says there are those who call themselves Christians who on the last day will not be saved. He says that. He says there will be people on the last day who say, I worked miracles in your name. And Jesus will say, I don't know who you are. There will be people who wrote books of theology who in the end are not saved. There will be pastors on the last day who are rejected. Get this one right. This matters. This matters for everything, both in this life and in the life to come. First, it matters in this life, because what Jesus wants when he saves us is to restore us to relationship with him and to one another. Jesus just doesn't want to be just an afterthought. There, there are people in church every Sunday who are there because it's the appropriate thing to do, or it's what they're used to, or it's what their community does, or in some way it feels right or appropriate but they've never stopped to enter into a deep daily relationship with Jesus. They've never turned and committed themselves to faithful obedience to him within the context of relationship with him. 
When you do that, Jesus seeks to restore you to relationship with him and relationship with others. And that makes all the difference in this world because uh, every study that's ever been done on human happiness says that if happiness comes from anywhere, it comes from love. Happiness comes from relationships. The longest study on human happiness ever done, which is still going on right now, is at Harvard University. It's actually been going on for 80 years. The researchers that started it had to hand it off to the next generation of researchers because the research has lasted longer than the researchers. And they studied these people over the course of their entire lives to find out what makes people happy. And without question, the clearest sign of happiness in people's lives comes from community. It comes from relationship. The study has shown you don't have to have lots of friends, nor do they have to be romantic. But happiness comes from restored and healthy relationships with other people. Uh, it uh, it's, uh, showed that um, in, the, in the midst of these studies, uh, it doesn't matter uh, what gender you are, it doesn't matter what ethnicity you are, uh, socioeconomics are peripheral to this. What it boils down to is the kind of relationships you keep. And people who know how to enter into and restore healthy relationships actually end up mentally and physically more healthy than those who don't. When Jesus saves us, he saves us into a relationship with him so that every single day he is first in our lives. Every single day we enter into a dialogue with him and we follow him and we obey him and we let him lead our lives. Jesus didn't walk around with the Apostles' Creed saying, just sign here and everything's fine. I just need to know that you've got the right doctrines in your head. He said to people, come follow me. And following him is an all-consuming kind of thing. It's not just getting the facts about him right in our heads. Satan has the facts about Jesus right in his head. It doesn't save him. What we're called to is to follow him. And when we follow him, we're restored into a relationship with him which in turn restores us into relationships with one another. Then it makes all the difference in the world that's to come. Uh, and this is, this is the promise. Um, a lot of people have spent their lives faking it when it comes to Christianity, when it comes to faith, just kind of keeping it on the periphery. And Jesus says on the last day, there aren't going to be any lukewarm Christians in heaven. There will not be those ushered through the door who just kind of ignored him their whole lives long. It doesn't matter that we attend church every week if our hearts aren't in it. There are all kinds of people who are uh, mad right now that, uh, that they have to wear masks to church. But in reality, we've been wearing masks to church for years. It was just a different kind of mask. Jesus wants us to put all that aside and be our real selves in relationship with him. To come into a daily communion with him so that we're restored to life and so that when we show up on the last day, we don't point over our whole life and say, look, look at how good I was. Look at all the things I accomplished. Instead, we just look at him and say, hey, you and I already know each other. You, you died for me. I, I embrace that. We've spent life together. And Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter your eternal rest. There was a, uh, uh, a moment on the cross where Jesus said, one of his last sentences that he said, he said, it is finished. 
And theologians have generally assumed that what he meant was the process of salvation is finished. That when he died on the cross, all of our sins were taken off of us and onto him so that we've been set free. So that when we believe in him, we're forgiven. Forgiveness is just yours. If you believe that he took your sins from you, he did. That's all you have to do is receive it. And I think that's right. I think that's what he meant when he says it is finished. But I read a, a Greek Orthodox priest this last week who speculated that Jesus meant something more by the sentence, it is finished. He said, I think what Jesus meant was creation was finished. Creation that began in the book of Genesis, when God created Adam and Eve, when God created human beings out of the earth and brought us to be. The creation of humanity actually didn't come to a completion until Jesus died on the cross for us. Because only when we've been restored are we fully human. Only when we're living in a fully restored daily relationship with Jesus are we fully human. Only when we believe that he died for us on the cross is it finished. So the call to you and I, the call of the book of Revelation that says there's going to be a day where we stand in front of Jesus, the call is to be ready. And the way we prepare is through a, a word that the Bible uses. The word is repentance. Repentance is not a popular topic in modern preaching, but it's critical to our enter in, entering into a relationship with Jesus. Repentance is not an act of shaming ourselves. It's not an act of making ourselves vulnerable to an overbearing gym coach who just wants to scold us for having lost the game. Repentance is not an act that then gives us the right to go around judging other people who need to repent better. Repentance is just the act of saying, I've been going down the wrong road, and I don't want to go down that road anymore. I've lived a, a half-hearted faith instead of following Jesus. I've lived for selfish gain or entertainment or comfort, and what I need to live for is faith in him. Repentance is just that act of turning around and saying, I'm not going to live for what I used to be living for. I'm going to live for Jesus now. And there's absolutely no shame in that. There's no shame in choosing to be wise. There's no shame in learning from your mistakes. In repentance, there is nothing but grace. Because the God who loves you wants to put you on the right path. And it's the path of walking with him. Revelation, if it does nothing else, should make us stop and look to the God who is the Lord of all creation and consider the, the span of the lives that we have behind us now and simply ask, do I need to repent and be restored? If in any way you do, let's do it together in prayer right now. Jesus, I thank you that you love us and that you loved us so much that you would come and walk this earth to experience this life with us and to show us how to live and how to love. I thank you that you loved us so much that you would die on the cross in our place so that when we believe in you, all of our guilt and our shame are taken off of us. And I thank you that our creation is now finished. That now as we believe in you, we're restored to a daily relationship with you and to loving, sacrificial relationships with one another. For all those places where we have ignored you, we repent. 
for all those places we have pursued comfort and wealth and selfishness, we repent. For all those places we have ignored your voice and instead listened to the voices of the crowd, we repent. Jesus, forgive us. Come into our hearts. Be our Savior and our Lord. And by the power of your Spirit, teach us to follow you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you all. I'll look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Instagram or Facebook at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.